Morning, friends. Really good to be with all of you today. Uh, hey, one more announcement type thingy. Uh, so this is more of a save the date. Uh, but more info coming on this. We're going to have a, uh, a reception for Helen Miller on December 3rd. So uh, many of you are, are friends of Greg and Helen Miller and know that uh, Helen has recently passed. Uh, we're going to have a reception for her here for folks from Life Covenant. If you'd like to be part of that, December 3rd, 1 p.m., we would love to have you. I believe Greg's going to be here also. That'll be great. We'll share some food and share some memories and just celebrate her life. So more info to come. Uh, so uh, we've got about two weeks left in the sermon series we've been doing on American Idols. Uh, what are those aspects of American life? What are the things in our culture that we tend to make into idols? Right? Every culture has them. What are the things that are so ordinary to us? We don't even see them necessarily, but they are or they're in danger of becoming idols in our lives. of taking on more importance in our lives than God. Uh, so, um, oh, and as we get to that too, hey, quick shout out. So with this series, we've been doing a Bible reading plan as well. And uh, we had about 40 of you are going through that, uh, that reading through the book of Matthew. Super fun doing that with all of you. It was great just seeing people's participation and their comments and the way that the text was affecting them. So shout out to you all. Very good stuff. So this week, the idol this week, it, it brings together a number of the different idols we've been talking about through this series. So uh, certainly our freedom, uh, maybe our politics, uh, definitely our, our sex and our money. Uh, today, we're looking at the idol of religion, right? Religion itself can become an idol, and actually quite easily. It's maybe one of those areas that we're more susceptible to because, of course, religion feels very religious, and if it is becoming an idol in our lives, it can be subtle enough that maybe we don't even see it until we are neck deep in it. And think about this, just from kind of a cultural perspective. So, uh, there is something very, very American about religion, and, and thus the propensity there for it to become an idol. But whether you are a religious person or not, if you're an American, then religion is a very formative aspect of your life. Uh, think for a minute about our origin story as Americans. Right? The, the country was founded, when we talk about the pilgrims, we're, we're talking about a minority religious group that was fleeing persecution for the express purpose of being able to practice religion as they saw fit. When you look at the founding fathers of our country, most of them were religious. Most of them were Christians. Some were deists, but overwhelmingly, they followed a Judeo-Christian ethic. And you see that even in our founding documents. You, you read the Declaration, you read the Constitution. Our founding documents are shot through with the words of the Bible. God shows up in our Pledge of Allegiance. He shows up in the National Anthem. Even in a super blue state like ours, they ask a pastor to come and open our, our city council meetings in the city of Torrance. Uh, all of this is, is deeply embedded in American life. And even though, even though we have become much more secular and are becoming more secular as a society, it is a huge part of who we are. So as Christians, right, we, we might look at this cultural pressure towards God 
and say, well, this is a good thing, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, it, it is a good thing. If that is a cultural pressure that is, is driving us towards an actual relationship with God, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But it's not a good thing. If it is driving us towards religion as something that is less than that. When it pushes us towards having the appearance of religion, but not an actual relationship with God, it pressures us to act as if we did have that, or to think that we do when actually we don't. And so this is what we're calling the idol of religion. And we can maybe define it this way, that religion becomes an idol when it has the form of following God, but it lacks the substance. When it's just an empty shell of religion, when, when it has the form, but there's really nothing to it, or as they like to say in Texas, you know, that guy is all hat and no cattle, right? Big, big cowboy hat, no cows to go with the hat. Religion can become the same way. A shell that appears to have a knowledge of God, but maybe in reality doesn't. So, uh, this idolatry happens when religion is reduced to a form without substance. From God's vantage point, what constitutes substance? And that's, that's where we're going today. We're going to look at what Jesus says constitutes true religion, true substance. Uh, three verses in particular that uh, we're going to look at that Jesus speaks to these things. And then we'll end with one practice, one spiritual discipline that can help us in growing into an expression of faith that is more true and less idolatrous. Uh, but first, we'll look at a, a couple forms that this particular idol takes in American life. So let's pray, and we'll look at the scriptures together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the chance to be together, uh, to worship you as one family. And God, we pray that as we are here today, that you might meet us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would fill this place with your presence. We pray, God, that you would stir up your spirit inside of us, that we might see you clearly and respond properly. And God, we, we pray for each person here, wherever the, they are at in their walk with you, if they've been a Christian for a long time or if they're just exploring what that might mean. We pray, God, that by your spirit you would meet, meet each of us and, God, that you would move us one step closer to Christ. We trust you for this. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me throw out a reminder. We'll take you back a few weeks in our series. And how is it that idols work? How is it that idols have the power that they do in our lives? And the Bible describes this and in various places as, as the world, the flesh, and the devil. We could state it like this. An idol works because of deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. It starts with a lie. It starts with a deception. And that deception works because there's a part of us, there's a part of our flesh that it appeals to. And it further works because the world around us, as this becomes embedded in our society, tells us, yeah, yeah, that thing is true, even though it isn't. Deceptive ideas that play the disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And keep this in mind as a backdrop as we, we think about the idol of religion and the forms it takes in the U.S. So 
uh, we're going to just consider two forms. I'm sure there's a lot more that we could think about, but kind of two big buckets as we think about how religious idolatry happens with us here. Uh, the first is commonly known as nominal Christianity, where you are a Christian or you take on the name of Christian, but it is in name only, which is what nominal literally means, in name only. You claim the title and maybe some of the religious behaviors that go with that, something like going to church, for instance, but your Christianity is a far cry from actually orienting your life around Jesus and his teachings. And this particular idol, it appeals to that part of our flesh that wants to appear religious without actually having to be religious. That part of us that wants to have the appearance of a person who is godly, and especially when our society is reinforcing this, this becomes a very powerful appeal for us. To reduce our faith down to just the title, down to just the name. And if, if we could say that there are, are sort of more conservative and more liberal expressions of religious idolatry in our country, then this would be a more conservative expression of it. And I say that because it's, it's more applicable in settings where it is acceptable or favorable to be seen as religious, right? Obviously, that's not true everywhere. But in certain places and in certain settings and in certain relationships, it is advantageous to be seen as religious, whether you are or not. So we might be more prone to this particular expression, to nominal Christianity, if we live in certain parts of the country where there's a lot of pressure to be a churchgoer or, uh, or to be a Christian, or perhaps if you're part of a religious family, right, you might feel a lot of pressure in that to be nominal uh, rather than not Christian at all. You might feel that pressure. Or if you run in circles where there is pressure to be seen as Christian or to be seen as religious or to go to church, uh, if that is seen as a value, well, then it would seem, you know, our flesh would tell us and that, that environment would reinforce that it's better to be a Christian in name only than not at all. And so nominal Christianity starts to, starts to appeal to us and something that we are drawn towards. And, of course, this isn't just for those who are not Christian. You might find, if you are a Christian, you might find that as you examine your own faith and examine your own heart, that there's elements of this in you as well. There's elements of nominal Christianity. Now, sort of the, the stereotype, if you will, that goes with this, and I think they kind of get a bad rap for this, but, uh, but our Catholic brothers and sisters, the stereotype is that if you're from like a, a historically Catholic Latino or Irish or Italian family, then you are Catholic. And it doesn't matter if you haven't, been in the church since you were baptized as a baby, you will fight me to the death if I suggest that maybe you're not Catholic. Right? That's nominal Christianity. But this is just as alive and well in Protestant Christianity as it is in Catholic Christianity. And it, it takes maybe some different forms. Right? Maybe we have the, the infamous CEO Christian. Right? Christ, uh, Christmas and Easter only. You know, that's when you darken the door of a church. Or maybe you're, you're actually a member of the church. Uh, I was about to say card-carrying, but we don't have cards. But uh, you're a card-carrying member of the church, but it's kind of like that card in your wallet for 24-hour fitness, right? Where technically you are a member, but they never see you there, right? 
that maybe they get your money, but you know, you're never actually present in that place. Or maybe, maybe your body is there in church every week. But the other six days of the week, there's not actually any evidence that Jesus holds any lordship in your life. This is, this is nominal faith. It's Christianity in name only. Now, this, this is a thing here for sure. Uh, but I'll tell you, I, I always feel this more acutely uh, around Thanksgiving time when we go to visit my family in Oklahoma. And in, in Oklahoma, you literally do have a church on every corner. It's not just the same. And many people are in those churches. There is a tremendous cultural pressure in that part of the country to be in church every week. Contrast that to the South Bay, where 5 to 7% of our population here are churchgoers. It's, it's a dramatic difference. Uh, but it's, it's a very different environment. And I remember when I was graduating from seminary, uh, my mom was, was applying some gentle but loving pressure for me to maybe consider taking a church in Oklahoma. And I was, I was like, I can't do it, Mom. It would drive me nuts. Uh, call me weird, but I, I prefer a place like California where the lines are pretty clearly drawn. And, you know, if you are in, you're in for a reason. And if you're out, you're out for a reason. That's seen. But, uh, but that's maybe one example of how this plays out. Now, that's one, nominal Christianity. Uh, there's another version of religious idolatry that maybe we're prone to as Americans that I want us to consider as well. And that's what we might call the DIY religion, do-it-yourself religion. Uh, also known as churchless Christianity or as creedless uh, Christianity, uh, the common phrase we hear is, I'm spiritual but not religious. And, and by this, by churchless Christianity or spiritual but not religious, I don't just mean that you don't attend church, though you probably don't if this is how you identify. But it's more than that. It's that you don't adhere to any particular set of teachings. You just kind of do your own thing. This is the salad bar approach to religion. Right? You get in line and you get your plate and you take a little of the good stuff and you skip the arugula because that's a little too peppery and the kale, after all, that messes with your digestion. But then you get to the mushrooms and you're like, yes, a little of that, that would be fine. And then you cover the whole thing in a dressing that you really like. It's the salad bar approach to religion. A little of this, a little of that. And, and so maybe, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you've said this, maybe you say this. Say, you know, I, I don't really need to be part of a church to connect to God. I do it in my own way. I connect to God when I'm in the surf. Or I connect to God when I'm in the mountains. Or uh, I, I connect with God when I'm in my garden. Or, or maybe it's centered less around a place and it's centered more around a cause. Right? The way that I worship God is in my care for the planet. Or it's in my work for equality. Or it's in my service towards the poor. Uh, or maybe, maybe when it, when it comes to your morality, you might say something along the lines of, well, of course I draw on the words of Jesus. He's an important teacher, but I don't feel bound to adhere to everything that the New Testament says because, you know, after all, it's written a long time ago. They didn't understand all the things that we understand now. We've come a long way, etc., etc. 
Maybe, as a DIY religion person, you even attend church. But, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we let it uh, do more than just inform our lives, but do we let it order our affections and the way that we live and where our allegiances lie? Does it, in other words, affect the other six days of the week or just this one? Right, because with this one too, with DIY religion, this is not just an idolatry that we find among those who are not Christian. We find it among ourselves as well. And as, as we look at our own hearts, we need to be aware of this. Uh, as a Christian, usually it just looks like a customization. Of course I'm a Christian. But I'm just going to tweak it a bit to make it more to my liking. And maybe, maybe we're more prone to this particular idolatry in places like ours, in a place like Southern California. Or if you're part of a family, or you run in circles where it's not respected to believe in God. Or if, if you do, you'll be tolerated, uh, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Right? God is welcome to be in our lives as a handy accessory, but... If he starts expecting us to live in a certain way, that's, that's different. Jesus is fine in this idolatry. Jesus is perfectly fine when he can add backing to my enlightened 21st century thinking. But the idea of him being at the center of my life and how I live and what I think and how I believe, well, that's just extreme. And we don't have room for that in a society like ours. You feel any part of this? Um, DIY religion appeals to that part of our flesh that loves the sort of mix and match, pick and choose, that lets us say that we are spiritual, even perhaps say that we are Christian, but also allows us to remain firmly in control. We set the beliefs, we set the rules, we define morality. And of course, our society reinforces this at every turn. Uh, I did a wedding a couple years ago for uh, one of my buddies from high school. And uh, it was super fun. It was like, it was the same year as our 20-year reunion. We actually didn't have the reunion because, like, the wedding was the reunion. It was a great, it was a great fun time. but I remember this one conversation I had with a, a dude that I hadn't seen since high school. We were friends in high school. It had been a long time. Uh, I was living a lot differently at that point. And, um, you know, here I am now, 20 years, I'm a pastor. And a lot of folks were scratching their heads trying to make sense of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, he greeted me and there was a big smile. But 30 seconds into the conversation, you could just feel there was this layer of hostility that was there. And... Um, and he was like, ah, oh, so, okay, so you're a Christian now. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian now. You know, he's, he knew this. He just watched the wedding. Um, <laughs> he says, well, well, that's great. I'm really happy for you. But you're not one of those kinds of Christians, are you? And, uh, and I played along. I said, well, what kind of Christian is that? But, of course, even in the question, I knew. I mean, the implications were obvious. 
It's like you are naive, a simpleton. You have prudish, outdated ethics that probably don't approve of how much I've had to drink already and that I'm trying to go home with this bridesmaid. You know, that was sort of the gist of the conversation, boiling it down uh, very small. Uh, but that, that is the societal pressure on DIY religion, right? I can respect if you're a Christian. I just hope you're not one of those kinds of Christians. And by that, I mean the kind of Christian that believes what Christians have always believed. DIY religion, that's the temptation. Uh, if in a more conservative setting, we're prone to the former. In a more liberal setting, we might be more prone to the latter. But I think in reality, if we're really honest, as we look in ourselves, we may find elements of both. Right? You, you may play the nominal Christian when you go to visit your mom, and the spiritual but not religious when you're with your colleagues at work. We can flow very easily between these two different idolatries. And you see the common thread in both, right? The common thread in both is that they allow us to have religion without having God. They allow us to have the appearance of spirituality and the appearance of religion. But at the same time, we don't put ourselves underneath a greater being. We just sample the parts that we like, like a person going through a buffet line. Uh, Theologian John Stackhouse, I, I love the way he puts it, he says, We like our religion a la carte. I want a little Confucianism to organize my life, a little Tai Chi for strength and balance, a weekend tantric sex workshop for spice, and the 23rd Psalm when I overdo things and get myself in trouble. (laughs) Uh, Friends, listen. The Bible is ruthlessly clear about this. When these are our approaches to God, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping an idol. There's a difference, and we need to know Now, by contrast, uh, I want to look at three statements of Jesus, three statements in the New Testament that frame for us what true religion looks like. Uh, This isn't an exhaustive list, but I I think these three speak to some of the particular deformities of religious life in America and the idols that we are tempted toward. So, uh, number one is this. Number one is the true religion is knowing Jesus. This is John 17. It says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And hear this. He says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, eternal life, according to Jesus, eternal life, or we might say the kind of true religion that results in eternal life, it's not knowing about God. It's not subscribing to any particular theology. It is knowing God. Knowing God through his son, Jesus. Uh, Eternal life, uh, hear this, eternal life is not going to heaven when you die. Though, if you have eternal life, you will. 
Eternal life is not holding on to the right beliefs. Although, of course, if we're following Jesus, then we should. And nor is eternal life doing religious things, so this might help us grow in our faith. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is in contrast to the message of our idols, where you're able to sort of customize the who behind your religious experience. Right? And maybe that's the, the God's gun and country version of Jesus that we sometimes are drawn to in America. Uh, maybe this is the social justice Jesus who doesn't care what your morality looks like as long as you are caring for the poor. Or maybe it's not necessarily Jesus at all. That he's just one great prophet out of many that points us toward the divine. And we'd be very happy to take his suggestions along with the other great religious teachers in the world so long as you like the suggestions. But that won't do. We are not at liberty to define the God of true religion. It has been defined for us. Eternal life is knowing God and His Son, Jesus. Right? This, this is as bold a statement in the first century as it is the 21st. For Jesus to say, knowing the only true God. Right? Just to say that this is a God who admits no rivals. And he says this in the context of an ancient world where, uh, where in the Greco-Roman world, where the gospel would soon go, you know, Rome was very happy to say, you can have as many gods as you want. And Jesus, absolutely. You can just put them there on the mantle next to the other ones. And that was, was kind of the way that religious uh, belief worked in ancient uh, Roman world. Uh, and, of course, in our world as well. It's not dissimilar. Most of the people in your life would be very happy for you to have Jesus as your God. So long as that Jesus doesn't judge them in some way or define the way that you are to live your life. And to that, Jesus says, no. True religion, eternal life, is knowing God as he is. There's... There's two words in the Greek language for, for the verb know. Uh, the first is oida, and that means like to know about. If you read a book, then you can oida something, right? I may never have been to France, but I can read a book about France, and I can oida France. But then there's another word in Greek. It's the word gnosko, and that means to know by experience. It means to know because you have touched this thing or you're in relationship with this thing. And the word Jesus uses here is gnosko. It's not just knowing about. This is the knowledge of relationship. This is the knowledge that you have of a friend or of a spouse or of a child. This is knowing because you are there with that person. True religion, according to Jesus, true religion knows God. And we might ask, friends, does my practice of religion, does it look more like the real thing, or does it look like I'm worshiping an idol? Does it look like knowledge of God as he has revealed himself, or have I diminished him into something less? True religion, 
always involves knowing Jesus. A second statement of Jesus for us to look at here, and the headline we put on us is this, it's the true religion submits to Jesus. This is Luke chapter 9. It says, Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, true religion, the kind that Jesus describes, true religion submits itself to Jesus. And, man, here's where we're really meddling, right? First off, no one likes the word submission. Nobody. We don't want to do it, no matter the context. But this is exactly what it is that Jesus calls us to. To be saved is to be his disciple. And to be his disciple is to deny ourselves and instead take up his cross and follow and the irony here is, is beautiful. Right? He says, if you want to save your life, you have to give it up. The one that tries to save their life is actually losing it in the process. And I, and I feel this. You know, many of you know, know my story, but um, you know, it wasn't really until college that my faith became my own. And, uh, and that came at the end of a four or five year period of running pretty hard away from God. I, you know, I chose San Diego State as the college I wanted to attend, mostly because it seemed the one most probable to look like Animal House. And I thought, well, you know, that looks like the life that I should probably be chasing. But it was a mirage. And I wrecked myself pretty well. And Jesus, in his grace, used that to draw me to himself. Uh, I tried desperately to save my life. To chart out the path that I thought would have the most pleasure and the least pain, uh, and it didn't work. I lost my life in the process. But I can tell you this too, truly, that in the last 30 years, uh, losing my life, that is, as I can, taking up my cross and following Jesus, denying myself, it has been incredibly Satisfying. Jesus says that he came to bring us abundant life, and it's true. He does. And that's, it's not just on the other side of this life. It begins now, as we learn what it is to walk with Jesus. Uh, it's true what Jesus said, that following him is the easy yoke. This is the easy path of love and joy and peace and patience. It's not without difficulty. Don't, please don't hear me wrong. Jesus promised us that, that there is going to be suffering, and there's going to be suffering specifically for being his disciple. All that is true, too. But there is no richer path we can take. There is nothing we can do to save our lives short of losing them and surrendering ourselves, submitting ourselves to Jesus. Uh, John Stott, we talked about last week, dragging a quote from him this week here, but Listen to what he says here. I love this. He says, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. 
If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. And then listen to this next part, because in it he describes both nominal Christianity and DIY religion. Listen for these, they're both in there. He says, in countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. The message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Friends, true religion, not the idolatrous version, but true religion, means that submission to Jesus is not optional. We are only his disciples if we deny ourselves and we take up our cross and we follow him. And maybe ask yourself this this morning too. Ask, are there areas of my life that I refuse to surrender? And if so, are, are you willing to submit those to Jesus today, even as we worship together? Willing to give those up to him and trust but in losing those, you might actually gain life. Well, that's two. Can you give us one more? Number three is this. True religion results in Jesus-like compassion and righteousness. Uh, this is from the, the book of James. He writes, The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's a reminder here in James that true religion is not just proper theology. The true religion is also right practice. As we'll remember that being a disciple is ultimately about becoming like Jesus. Believing what he believed, but also learning to do what he did. Uh, to live and to think and act and to feel the way that Jesus feels. And that's what happens in us as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus. And there's two aspects of that in this verse. Right? The first is caring for the most vulnerable. Right? Pure and faultless religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And James here is picking up on an Old Testament formula that you see a ton. Uh, where it talks about caring for uh, the orphan and the widow and the immigrant. Those three were lumped together, as those three are typically in any society uh, among the most, if not the most, vulnerable of people. Those most susceptible to poverty, those most susceptible to exploitation, those most susceptible to the power-hungry who would impose their will on them. And James names that. And he says, look, if this is not part of your religious life, then something in your religious life is broken. Because pure and faultless religion cares for those who are most vulnerable. And so, friends, this means for you and I, 
It means that some of our money is going to go to those who don't have. Some of our time is going to go to those who need our presence. There is going to be a physical participation. There is going to be an embodiment of the things that Jesus does in caring for those who are most vulnerable. And there's a second thing that James names here too. And that's not being polluted by the world. He says, if, if you are practicing true religion, then one of the products of that, the result of that over time, is that you are going to be more and more living the kind of moral life that Jesus commands us to live. That this too is part of what it means to follow Jesus well and to practice religion that is true. Now, here's an interesting thing about reading this verse in our very polarized and divided times. If, if you are more of a progressive, well, if, if that's the case, then the first part of this verse is music to your ears. You hear this as true religion, as caring for those in need, and you're like, yes, I knew it, that is what it is. And maybe if you lean more to the conservative side of things, you might hear the second part of this verse and hear about not being polluted by the world and say, yes, that's right, we're going to hell in a handbasket and we need an upgrade in our collective morality. But friends, note the and in this verse. This is not multiple choice. This is both and. Religion that is true, religion that is not uh, not corrupted by the idols of our culture and of our time is a both and. We need to be those who are caring for the vulnerable. We need to, those, to be those who are practicing a Jesus-shaped morality. Practicing one does not absolve you of the other. It has to be both. And we have to be very honest with ourselves in this. Uh, if we find that we are all about one and not about the other, uh, we're fooling ourselves. If we are saying that we are following the kind of religious practice that Jesus would have us follow, it has to be both. Uh, Brendan Manning tells a, a great story to this end uh, about a priest in France. And it was the dead of winter. And he walked outside of his parish church and saw a young girl who was shivering in the cold. And he asked where she had to go, and she had nowhere. And he said, well, I, I need to take her in. And the, uh, the only place in the church where he could put her was in the room where they kept the communion elements that room was heated, and other parts of the church were not. And he removed the communion elements and allowed the girl to spend the night in there. Uh, well, when his bishop heard about this, he was infuriated. He said, how can you take the holy sacraments and move them out of that place of warmth and instead put this child from the street in there instead? And the priest replied, was perfect. He said, Christ isn't cold in the sacrament but he's cold in the body of a young child. True religion, the kind that God accepts, the kind that Jesus points us towards, it always cares for those in need. And it always follows a Christ-shaped morality as well. 
Well, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to give us a practice as well uh, before we respond in worship this morning. Uh, a spiritual discipline that helps us in moving away from the kind of religion that shot through with our little idolatries and the kind instead that Jesus moves us towards. You ready for it? The spiritual discipline is this. It's belong to a church. Now, I know, this is the height of simplicity, and you happen to be sitting in a church, so you have some sympathies towards this practice, I would imagine. But, think about this. Uh, belonging to a church is antithetical to nominal Christianity. We're attending church lists very low on your, uh, your ranking of potential Sunday morning activities, usually somewhere underneath sleeping, reading the newspaper, if anyone still gets that, drinking coffee, and washing your hair. Going to church is somewhere underneath those things. And what can be less do-it-yourself religion than being part of organized religion, right? It's the worst. I need to meet God on a trail. I need to be able to do my own thing. I definitely don't need a church to tell me what to believe or how I'm supposed to live. Uh, but let's just make it worse still. Note here, I'm actually not talking about attending a church. I'm talking about belonging to a church. I'm talking about attaching yourself to a body of Christ followers and making that part of what it means to come under the rule of Christ in your life. It means you are giving the body of Christ a measure of authority in your life. And when you think about it, this is such an effective corrective to our tendency to make God something that we can control. Right? That's at the heart of whichever expression of American idolatry we buy into in terms of religious life. At the heart of it is, I'm the one who's in control. Don't tell me what to do. That is such an American thing to say. I just heard it as I said it. But we are saying, no. I am going to give my allegiance to Christ. And not just in a hypothetical, ethereal way. But in a concrete expression of a worshiping family of faith in the here and the now. And you know, friends, you know if you've been around the scriptures for very long, that really there is no such thing as a Christianity that is divorced from other people. We are always called to follow Jesus as part of a community. And so what I am saying is use that. Lean into that reality. If you want have Christ breaking you free more and more from the idolatrous ways that religion takes its form in American life, belong to a church. Belong to its people. Be part of worshiping. Serve. Give. In every way that you can think to do, put yourself in allegiance with a local expression of Christ's body. I would say, I, I would go so far as to say that it is not possible to be a healthy, growing Christian if you don't do this. 
It's that fundamental to the Christian life. It takes God from being something we can control. And it said, it says in all humility that I'm going to come under a body of teaching that's been handed down for millennia. I'm going to subscribe to a set of ethics that I do not dictate. I am going to give myself to a group of people, many of whom I'm going to like and a few of whom I struggle with, but that's not the point. It's people that belong to Jesus. And I'm saying, these are now my people. Does that make sense? Um, Hear this. I'm, I'm not just talking about attending church. You know, I hope you do. That's a good thing. I'm talking about belonging. And that's a choice that you and I have to make. What place am I going to give the people of God in my life? And friends, I tell you this. We need the people of God if we're going to be formed properly into the image of Christ and not deformed into the forms of religion that our culture takes. Let's pray together.